The first reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and can be found in the Blue Bible on page 835, and in the Large Print Bible on page 1840. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Our second reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. The story or the parable of the talents. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. And, sorry, uh, See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. 
I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw the worthless, worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. From Matthew 25 and verse 29, for whoever has been given more, for whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. Let us pray. Loving God, we thank you for your words but we lack the understanding. And we pray now for your Holy Spirit to breathe into these words and bring them to life for us so that we might live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those of you that uh, came to uh, midweek communion this last Wednesday will recall that Fred took this very same passage uh, as his text, and as he clearly explained uh, on that occasion, this particular parable is possibly one of the most difficult parables of all for us to understand, and in fact throws up more questions than it actually provides. And for those that weren't there on Wednesday, uh, let me just run through some of the questions that, uh, that Fred raised with us about this particular parable. So, for example, 
the very harsh treatment that it seems that this, that this um, what person with the one power servant with the one talent receives in the first place in the anger of the master when he returns to find that his servant has buried what was given. And as Fred pointed out, in the text we're already told that the master had already made some kind of assessment of the abilities of those particular servants because he distributed to them differently, Matthew tells us, according to their ability. So that those who the master considered more able were given more, and those he considered less able were given less. So by only giving one talent to that one servant, he already had a pretty low opinion of that servant's ability. Seems, therefore, that he should not have been surprised when the the servant didn't quite meet what he was supposed to be doing. Again, there's the case of the other two servants who were obviously more able. And uh, should they not, therefore, have gone to the assistance of the one who was less able, obviously less able, and uh, help him rather than letting him fend for himself? And if there was a, a particularly Christian message that we could have taken out of that, it would have been about helping the poor and the needy and so on, but not in this case. In fact, they didn't do that at all. And the fact that they were more able servants and they didn't go to the assistance of the other servant who was obviously less able than them, doesn't that also reflect rather badly upon those other two And yet the master doesn't seem to think about that and he simply praises them and calls them good and faithful servants. Were they so so good and faithful? Again, as Fred pointed out, sorry if I'm quoting Fred and using Fred's text as a rather large part of this, but actually he does, text, Fred does really raise the questions very well. Not sure he gave us the answers, but he certainly raised the questions very well about the fact that uh, the servants, were these two able servants, did they, could they have done more? They only brought back double. Perhaps there was a degree of complacency amongst them. Maybe they could have actually done a lot more than they actually did, and so on. So much, therefore, for the questions that this parable raises. But how do we begin to unlock it? How do we begin to discover what it actually says to us today? And I think the first way in to this particular parable is to understand exactly and identify exactly where it comes in Matthew's Gospel. 
I said a few weeks ago when we were beginning, the last block, Matthew's Gospel, is divided up into five blocks of teaching. And uh, these five blocks of teaching are to represent Matthew's Christ-centered alternative to the five books of the law uh, at the beginning of the Old Testament, which formed the basis of the Jewish law. Matthew wants to say there now is a new law, and it's based and centered on Jesus Christ. And so his gospel, really, the whole of his gospel mirrors that. And this comes at the last part, and very much in the last block of that teaching, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he will be leaving them, when, of course, he was going to the cross and he would be dying and, and, and being raised from the dead and then ascending, and there will be a time then when he would no longer be physically with them. But then also he told them there would be a time when he would return. And so this particular block is filled with parables on that subject filled with parables about featuring the master going away and returning suddenly and therefore exposing the readiness or the unreadiness, as the case may be, of those who were left behind. And while the return of Jesus, of course, has global implications for everyone, because it marks the end of the world as we know it, these parables in Matthew's Gospel are not about so much the rest of the world. They are specifically aimed at Christian believers. That those would, who were given the responsibility to carry on once Jesus had ascended into heaven. So that, for example, this whole section begins in chapter 22, with the parable of, as we heard it a few weeks ago, the parable of the invited guests at the wedding banquet. Last week, invited guests. Note that. Last week we had the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins and the importance of holding a light in the darkness and as Paul describes in that first reading from 1 Thessalonians 5, that's exactly how we're described, how he describes Christian believers as lights. Light in a dark world, holding the Christ light within us. And a number of parables feature master and servants as we heard in the text. Only in the original Greek text it doesn't say servants at all. The Greek word that is used in these texts and all of these texts is the Greek word doulos, which actually means slave. But the translators, as they translated this into more modern-day language, substituted the word slave for servant because of the very negative associations that that word, slave, actually 
has when we think of the word slave. We think, of course, of cruelty, of abuse, of injustice, and rightly so. Rightly so. For very often it is precisely about that. Yet in the ancient world, slavery did not have that same kind of association with it. Yes, of course, there were still incidences of great injustice and cruelty, but for some slaves, it in fact meant the opposite. It meant security. It meant stability. It meant a sense of belonging. In the Bible, there are a number of examples of slaves that in fact rose to become great. Joseph, for example. Nehemiah became the second greatest person in all the kingdom. Began as a slave. When St. Paul in the New Testament describes the relationship that Christians have with Christ, he uses the word doulos, slave. That's what we are. Yet, of course, when he uses that word to describe us as slaves, as it were, of Christ, it's not in that negative, cruel uh, way. But he's describing a sense of belonging that we now have, a sense of a place, that we belong to Jesus because he gives us stability. He gives us a purpose. He gives us a home. Because Jesus has bought us. He's paid the price for us through the cross. We belong, therefore, to him. So when it comes to this particular parable here that we're thinking about this morning, about these three servants, the original word that is used in the Greek text is the word doulos. These are not servants. These are slaves. And like the other parables in this section, the emphasis is very much, therefore, on Christian believers, on their commitment, on their dedication, on their alertness, on their enthusiasm, on their spiritual zeal, in the interim time between the time when Christ ascends to his Father in heaven and the time when he comes again. In that interim time, it's about those Christian believers keeping that enthusiasm, that zeal, that fire. In other words, it's about us. It's about you and me in the here and the now, in this interim time between the time when Christ has ascended and the time when he will return again. How we keep our commitment, how we keep our enthusiasm, how we keep our zeal, how we keep our spiritual fervor for the Lord. Does that ring any bells with you? Are you enthusiastic? Have you got that spiritual zeal? Or 
Have you gone to sleep? That's what this is about. And it might be attempting to expand this, this parable, expand the limits of this parable into other areas, into a general comment about gifts and, and talents and using your money. And I hear that sometimes this particular parable is used a lot of times when trying to have church gift days and trying to get people to think about how they use their money and that sort of thing. Or it might be about how you use your, use your particular talents that you have and all, and all that sort of stuff. I want to suggest we should resist that. Resist it. Because it's as we try to expand this parable beyond those very confined limits that that's when we begin to get the problems with it and the difficulties that Fred very clearly uh, raised with us on Wednesday. This parable is not a blueprint for good economic investment. It's not even guidance for good moral behaviour. That is not what this parable is about. This is not about our moral responsibility to help the weak and the less fortunate and everything else. Of course, that is a vital part of what Christians are called to do. But this is not where this parable is at. This parable is not about those things. In fact, this parable is very much related to the parable that precedes it. The parable that we had last week. The virgins and the lamps lit in a dark world. It is about precisely doing that. Holding the Christ light in a dark world. Like the master that gave his servant something of his wealth to use and to invest on his departure. What is it that Christ has given us when he departed? What is it he's given us? He's given us his spirit. It's in the light of Pentecost that we must see this parable, and only in the light of Pentecost. This is about the gift of the Spirit. And just as Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 identifies the different gifts that we are all given, different gifts, so that's mirrored in the different gifts that are given to the three slaves. Different gifts, different abilities, but all coming from the one Spirit. Because for every person who has come to Christ, every person, no matter who they are, who has been bought by the cross, bought by the blood of Christ, Every servant who belongs to him is given the gift 
of his spirit without exception. And the one thing that we should never do is to bury that gift. And that's highlighted in the text that I started with at the beginning. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. If you applied that as a general principle to the way that we should behave in life, that's outrageous. If you apply that as a general rule of thumb and say, actually, only those that have will be given more, and those that haven't, they won't have anything, and that will be taken away from you. If you apply that as a general principle, that's outrageous. That's obscene. The only place that that will apply, the only place where that rule would apply is with the gift of the Spirit. The gift of God's Spirit. It's only there that you either use it or you lose it. Nowhere else. It's only if you use the Spirit that God has given you in your heart that you'll be given abundance. But the one thing you must never do is to bury it. But rather in every way that you can, and by all the means that you can, let it shine as lights in the world. Let the Spirit of Christ shine in your life, bringing light to a dark world. Thanks be to God. Amen.